the Quarter to Three Games podcast for Spirit Island. My name is Tom Chick, and my game of the week is not Comancheria. Hi, my name is Eric Royce, and uh, my name, my game of the week, rather, is uh, not Sidereal Confluence. Why isn't it? Because I actually have that in the mail on the way. It isn't because I haven't had a chance to play it since Origins, which makes me sad. Oh, so you have tried it, though. Oh, yes. It does one of my favorite things, which you're guilty of as well. The whole idea of the asymmetry it plays with. I'm really eager to try it. That was lovely. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, uh, Eric, you are the guy who has been responsible for me spending way too much time at the tabletop lately. Uh, one of the problems I have with talking to you about Spirit Island, the game that you made, is that you have been remarkably uh, transparent and articulate in terms of the design process and your thoughts with a series of entries at Board Game Geek, uh, even in the Kickstarter campaign, by the way. You've had a lot to say about what inspired the project, your different thinking for different design elements. So basically, in a way, I want to tell people listening, just go read that stuff because it's great. Um, so one of the things that struck me, though, in terms of looking this up and doing a little bit of Board Game Geek stalking, by the way uh, – you started this game five years ago. This game is as old as your child. Yes. So yes. five older. years Sorry. older. Yeah, yeah, right. Because he was five years. Yeah, you've been working on it a few months when he was born. Uh, so obviously, uh, you you've talked about how playing games like Endeavor or Goa, you have this idea. What's it like from the other guy's perspective? I have a question for you. In making a game about that. Mm-hmm. Why throw in the supernatural? Mm. That was a very early decision, uh, although it is one that I revisited once or twice to see if I wanted to keep it. Ah. Uh, it was originally conceived of as a what if. Uh, I'm a fan of alternate history with authors like Harry Turtledove, who look at a historic situation which is pretty much just as it was, but then change one variable. And that one variable can be something very small, like one of Harry Turtledove's series. It involves a particular message uh, in the Civil War in the United States uh, not being intercepted when it actually was. It was like something which was dropped in it with like some cigars by accident. And in, in this alternate history, the scout picks it up and delivers it and ends up changing the course of the war. Mm-hmm. Um, the... Uh, it ranges from that sort of little tiny detail all the way up to huge things. Like he also has another series, which is what if it was the peak of World War II when aliens showed up intent on conquering the Earth? Uh, and in both cases, you know, he takes a very, you know, straight historical setting and then adds some sort of twist. Uh, and other authors as well, in addition to Harry Turtledove, he just springs to mind. Uh, so that is where my mind went with this. It was, all right, you know, generally speaking, uh, in most of the colonial situations in history, the native resistance, you know, whoever the the first peoples there were, uh, had so many factors going against them, you know, between uh, technology levels uh, and population levels and the diseases which had been incubating in the high population centers of Europe and all of these other factors that uh, no matter how clever they were, no matter how uh, brave and resistant they were, just the deck was so stacked against them that eventually, like it might not happen immediately, they might drive off the, the, the colonists for a while, but if the colonists kept coming back, then things just didn't go well. Uh, I think it was at the 
and crossing the Canary Islands is someplace else. There's some place which took like seven different colonization waves to finally conquer. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't the Canary Islands, but I can't remember where it was. Uh, the so I was thinking like, what could give them that edge? What could even the odds? And I'm like, what, well, what could be that box of dropped cigars? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Except uh, I thought that just a, a single box with a message probably wasn't going to do it. Right. Uh, but to to, e- to even out that balance, I'm like, what if the uh, supernatural elements of the world, uh, which you know they did call on, uh, what if they were real? And I don't just mean like subtly real, but like you know rearing over you in a thirty foot incarnation, smiting you with lightning, real. Uh, undeniably real, real on a very obvious macro kicking your butt sort of level. Uh, and I thought that would probably give the colonists a problem. Uh, and so that's sort of where it started. Uh, when, I did when re- you... Go ahead. I'm okay. sorry. Uh, I did revisit the this decision once or twice because it does make the game more about the spirits than about the people being colonized. Mm-hmm. And that's something which uh, I feel is not intrinsically bad, but is not necessarily intrinsically good either. Uh, but in both cases, for different reasons, I decided to continue on with the original uh, players playing the spirits with the Dahan, the first peoples on Spirit Island, uh, being allies, but not, at least in the core game, player positions. Right. Well, where did the word Dahan come from? Oh, oh my God. <laughs> A week of painful research. Uh, Dahan, so the first thing was that I knew that I, they needed a name. And so I talked to one of my friends who's uh, a PhD in linguistics and asked like, okay, so what's a, uh, a plausible set of phonemes which isn't going to localize Spirit Island to a specific place in the world? Because I was sort of trying to make a setting which could fill in for conflicts throughout history and across the globe, uh, where if anybody wanted to say, yeah, like, you know, this is sort of reminiscent of the battle for this place, you know, then they could sort of map that uh, historic projection in their own mind onto the onto the game. Mm-hmm. Um, so she came back with uh, a, a sort of a plausible list of phonemes. So I'm like, okay, great. So I, I started with those. I'm like, okay, their, their name has to use the phonemes in their language. And it shouldn't be too long. And that's not going to be too hard. Oh, and also, it should be easy to pronounce. Um, oh, and when you say it out loud, it can't sound confusing. Like, I briefly looked at Atu, and if you say, like, gather up to two Atu, then it starts sounding really... <laughs> yeah, like, it, it just doesn't work. Um, and, and I'm like, okay, great. And so I came up with some ideas, and then I did some quick Googling, and, like, one of them was a real ethnic group, another was an extinct ethnic group, and another one was, like, a terrible, terrible word in some language or other. I'm like, oh, <laughs> okay, all right, there's some other considerations here. So uh, what I thought at first was going to be pretty easy uh, and, like, not trivial, but not take too long, ended up taking a, more or less all of my game dev time for a week just brainstorming things which sounded okay, weren't too long, could be pronounced reasonably easily without confusing the issue, and then running them past Google to try and avoid major uh, landmarks, existent ethnic groups, uh, dirty words in a variety of languages, uh, or any other things which would sort of tie them to uh, something real life which I didn't want. Uh, and Dahan was the first one I tried which came close to passing all those litmus tests. Mm-hmm. 
Oh. Uh, it, it sounds a little reminiscent to me, and I know you're avoiding this, but I just can't yeah. help but think of this. It sounds a little re- reminiscent of the, the Navajo name for themselves is Diné. Uh, just, just, mm-hmm. just, uh, and it also, are you dismayed that there's a, a young fella, a young actor with this name? So, the oh, guy no, named- no, I wasn't avoiding I wasn't avoiding like individual. If I tried to avoid individual people's names, so the complicating factor, which I didn't mention, is that when you use a set of phonemes, which is universal or near universal across the globe, and you go for short words, you get a lot of overlap. So <laughs> right. I, so I, no, like so minor place names, fine. People's names, fine. Like you know, overlap with those sorts of things, okay. It's just I was trying to avoid like. Oh, this is actually a major river in Africa. Oh, right. this is a World Heritage site. You know that kind of stuff. Um, well, uh, instead, I get people uh, who make jokes about Dane DeHaan whenever we play. Uh, so. Okay, <laughs> it could be worse, though, Eric. Yeah. Oh yes. Uh, what uh, when when you were making it uh, and when you write about it, it's very clear that obviously this is a, a co-op design. Uh, mm-hmm. You have specifically taken pains to avoid the problem of the alpha player. Uh, you, I, I think it's clearly not designed to be played with just one spirit. Um, I, as a as a guy who plays a lot of board games, prefer playing competitively when when my friends are over. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I want things that I can't play solitaire. If if they're not here, most co op games I can just play fine. When they're here, I want to take advantage of them being here by playing something competitive, and that's just my own hang up. Other people don't really have that. Co op gaming is definitely a thing. It's taken off. Uh, in making it, basically, I look at Spirit Island as a fantastic solitaire game where I play two spirits, uh, and they complement each other, and I don't need anyone else, and I kind of feel like when I bring someone else along, it makes it more difficult by introducing the communication issues that you, in earlier designs, kind of tried to work around, Uh how much during the design process did you think, okay, this has to be co-op? Was it ever just a solitaire game? And are you like me in that you kind of – they overlap or they're synonymous in a way? Uh, during design, it was always intended as co-op but with the option for solitaire play. That was always okay. something I was aware of. I knew one or two folks who really enjoyed that sort of thing. So I always tried to make sure to avoid design decisions, which would prevent it down scaling down to a single player. Uh I know you prefer playing two-headed, where you're playing two spirits as if it's a virtual two-player game. But uh, I tried to make sure the mechanics worked all the way down to a single spirit on a single board, uh, which is you don't get the interesting synergies and uh, cross-spirit dynamics, but you do get the pure, undiluted strengths and drawbacks of a single spirit, very strongly concentrated if you're playing just a one-spirit game. Uh, you know, there's no other spirit there to pick up the slack for you in whatever areas you're weak. So it's an interesting challenge. Uh, as for my own personal tendencies, I would solo test Spirit Island for game design purposes. You know, I've run a, a zillion games where it was just me playing one, two, or three spirits. Uh, but uh, when I'm playing it for fun, I'm playing it socially. Uh, I'm always always playing it as a co-op. Um, I don't tend to do solitaire gaming for the most part. Uh, as one of my activities, um, when I, you know, that, that's a general rule. It is occasionally broken, and when I break it, Spirit Island is one of the things I will break it for. Mm-hmm. But uh, mostly, I'm playing it as a co-op. Uh, actually, I really enjoyed one of uh, my playtesters just posted a really interesting review on Board Game Geek, coming at it from the perspective of uh, she's played 
hundreds of games of Spirit Island, nearly all of them two-player with her husband. And her review is not about the mechanics, and it's not about the theme. It's about how playing Spirit Island has enriched her relationship with her husband, which was a really interesting viewpoint uh, and and a a really neat review to read. That you you made it... uh when you write about the early development, you, you pointed out there were a few point a few points in the development phase where you were dealing you were wanting to, to limit communications between players. And even early on, there was an iteration of it where there was no communication between players. Mm-hmm. Uh, wh- what were the play tests for that like? Is that because a lot of games, you know, they'll they'll say something sort of nebulous like oh don't specify which cards you have you can you can sort of generally speak about what you can do and you even for a little while had the cards face down uh you eventually just completely gave up on trying to control how or whether players communicated uh mm-hmm. what was there frustration involved in getting people during the testing to not talk to each other uh it, it seems like an, a bold design decision to say you're going to play a co-op game, but you can't use words with each other. That can't so, have been easy for players. No, well, it wasn't you can't use words. It was very close to that. It was you cannot communicate strategy. You could always ask about game rules. Uh, right. You cannot commu- try communicate about strategy and planning in any language which you shared at the start of the game. <laughs> uh, which led to, for example, uh, one of the players who was Canadian talking in French the entire game, rapid fire at us. Um, <laughs> and we could get the gist of it from his body language, like there was some time when he was clearly enthusiastic or he was clearly calling us all idiots or whatever. Um, but like my French was so rusty that I had no idea what he was actually saying. Uh, the, and most of the other players would do similar, some actually would sort of start inventing a dialect while others would sort of just do the uh, uh, gestures and interesting noises, uh, the players who enjoyed that rule often got sort of into the role playing of it. Uh, right. they, they'd, you know, if they were playing an Earth spirit, they'd kind of lower their voice and make grumbly, like you know, rock crushing noises while pointing at places on the board. Uh, but the, you know, there was also a fair amount of, of of dislike on the people who didn't like the communication restrictions, and uh, you know, people who who either. Uh, couldn't get into it or could get into it, but then didn't enjoy the effect on the game, which is why it ultimately changed. Uh, It's not that the communication restrictions didn't work. They worked beautifully for what they were intended to do, but they carried with it the disadvantage of, you know, three out of four people don't like the game anymore, and that's not acceptable. Right. Uh, So a couple of years ago, you did the... You were connected with Greater Than Games. You launched this as a Kickstarter. Uh, Before we talk about that, uh, can you tell me briefly what part of the country are you in, and do you have a day job besides this? Who's the guy who just came up with Spirit Island two years ago on Kickstarter? What was your background at that point? Because this is your Uh, first game, right? No, my second. I have one other out there. Oh, Fealty. Fealty, right. Fealty, which is as different from Spirit Island as is conceivably possible, other than the fact that they both – benefit from a certain amount of, uh, I guess I'll call it spatial look ahead, of being able to anticipate what a board will look like after certain actions resolve. Other than that, nothing in common. Fealty is a lightly themed abstract, with uh, which is competitive, and yeah, that's they're very different games. Did you um, work with Greater Than Games on that? Or was that? No, that was published through Osmati Games, the same oh, company sure. which does yeah innovation and the like. Sure. Um, so, the... I live in uh, the Boston area in Massachusetts, and uh, my day job right now is stay-at-home dad. 
uh, the at the time that I first started working on Spirit Island, our first child was not yet born. At the time, I was a house husband, where I would, you know, uh, handle all of the you know household chores and arranging with contractors when we needed something, grocery shopping, laundry, cleaning, this, that, the other thing, mm-hmm. uh, which you know meant that our household as a whole was lower on money, but uh, both my wife and I got more time, which was really great. Like that was a good trade-off for us. Mm-hmm. So, so you, uh, you prior, uh, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, prior uh, prior to that, like earlier on in my in my life, I worked as a programmer for like twenty years or so, but uh, not anytime recently. So you work with Asmadi to do uh, Fealty. You then mm-hmm. work with Greater Than Games to do Spirit Island. Uh, yep. Tell me a bit about the process of pitching to and being picked up by publishers. Like what uh, you, you obviously didn't have a, a huge. Uh, backlog of games that you had developed. Uh, how do you manage to connect with big publishers like that? So it's been different every single time. Uh, I have so I have two published games and I have a third game which is signed. And each time it went, it was a completely different vector. Uh, the first time with Asmadi, uh, Chris Seslick, uh, head of Asmadi Games, lives in the same town I do. We attend some of the same events. He saw an early prototype of Fealty. He was interested. He talked to me about it, and I went from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second time uh, was Greater Than Games in Spirit Island. There I went to Origins and was running playtests in the Unpub area. Are you familiar with Unpub? I am, yes. Yeah. So you know, I, I was there with the Big Blue Noodle, had the game set up, and Christopher Bedell from Greater Than Games just walked through the area looking at stuff. Spirit Island caught his eye. He came over and asked a few questions, which led to this long, in- we didn't actually play that year, but it led to this long in-depth conversation about it and some of the design elements and what I was trying to do with it and where things could be uh, uh, customizable and unique. And he was really enthusiastic. Uh, and after that, he said, you know, I don't know. He said, I want to see this game published because I want to play it. Uh, I don't know if Greater Than Games is the right publisher for it, uh, but if not, I want to help you find that right publisher. So then the following year at Origins, I he got in touch with me ahead of time saying, I'd like to see Spirit Island. And I was thinking to myself, yes, okay, I think it's in a pitch-worthy state at this point. And so I brought it and I pitched to, I can't even remember who else it was. I think I like did a short pitch to one other company. And then I was scheduled for another one. Is it Yellow? Uh, but we just kept missing each other. Like we kept texting each other when the other wasn't available. So it just wasn't coming together because I had foolishly not set it up ahead of time. Uh, yeah. Tip always try and set the meetings up ahead of time way easier. Um, they may not, you know, publisher may not have time to do so. And if they say, we'll just arrange it there, then go with whatever, go with that. But if they're able to set something up ahead of time, definitely do it way less hassle. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so then I met with greater than games and, uh, you know, showed them the game we played through a game and uh then they talked to me about their company and like you know i sold them on spirit island and they sold me on greater than games and as i continue to try and get together with other publishers i'm like you know can i imagine a reasonable enthusiastic response enough from some other publisher that i wouldn't want to go with greater than games and i thought and after sitting on it the answer was no like they they really said like they showed the enthusiasm, which made me think, yes, this is a great home for it. And uh, it's turned out to be a great home for it. Did you know they're Sentinels of the Multiverse game at that point? I, When I first met them, no. Uh, I got a demo of it the first year because I stopped by the booth to talk to Christopher, and they were they were demoing it. So I was familiar with it then. And then I think I played it 
like once or twice in the in the year between those two origins. But I had not heard of Greater Than Games prior to that origins. Now, was it called Spirit Island all along? Yes, we when we it was originally intended as sort of a prototype title, but then when we went to brainstorm actual titles, the there were like one or two which we thought, okay, this might be better than Spirit Island, and they all overlapped a little too much with some of the wording used in recent uh, Sentinels products. So like, ooh, okay, those don't work. So um, Spirit Island, yeah, sounds good. Um, it's it gets a lot of the things across. There's this odd sort of phenomenon in the co-op world where because of um, I don't know, like there seems to be a, a, a slightly higher than usual. There's like a small, uh, uh, greater than zero, zero Bayesian correlation between island and co-op. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> I I can imagine like the idea of survivor. Everybody's stuck on the island and has to work. Yeah, yeah. To live. yeah, yeah, exactly. But like, uh, so yeah, like there's like you know, uh, there's uh, Robinson Crusoe uh, on ah, island sure. and and Forbidden Island. Uh, and I think there might even be another. I don't know, but like, right, right. Yeah. But somebody had mentioned, oh, island, yeah, it's co-op. I'm like, oh, I guess there's sort of a, you know, maybe a, a faint correlation there. Um, and uh, then, yeah, you know, it, it gives gives you an, it gives you a strong idea of the theme right off the bat. So I have a weird thing when I'm playing, uh, and I don't know if this violates the internal fiction that you have here, Eric. Mm-hmm. I can't help but think of them as gods. So that uh, is not consistent with canon. The spirits are not gods, although... God in in canon, gods and spirits partake of a more similar essence than spirits and humans do, okay, or than gods right. and humans do. Uh-huh. Um, the the way that I tend to think, the way that I tend to think of it is that uh, actual gods and spirit island would be so they are less locally tethered. Um, okay. That being said, if you want to think of it that way. The spirits in Spirit Island are designed to be similar to a wide variety of spiritual entities across many different cultures, and many of those concepts do not map directly onto Western notions of, quote, spirit, unquote, or God, unquote, like, uh, 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 you know, uh, to, to, I can't talk to, to, many of the specific cultures I researched because it's been too long since I researched them. But one which I'm more overarchingly familiar with is Japan, although that wasn't a specific inspiration for Spirit Island. But like the word kami in Japan, like does it mean spirit? Does it mean God? Well, right. it kind of depends on context and kind of both, but not really, you know, it's, it's you know, the answer is sort of moo, unask the question. Um, and the spirits in Spirit Island are designed to be in that same sort of space. If you're thinking of them as gods you can but that's not how the dahan see them the dahan see them as you know sort of our supernatural neighbors with whom we get along sometimes right and uh with you know, uh it's um hmm well you're definitely right it doesn't it doesn't map to traditional western concepts of religion certainly not monotheism yes. uh no. but it does it does map so i I am a nerd. I, I have a theology degree, and it's just my oh, background. So, so that might be part of why I come to this. But mm-hmm. early early struggles in monotheism were dealing with this sort of animist 
paganism, basically, these, yes. these religions that housed gods in natural phenomenon. And mm-hmm. then there was this whole early movement where our monotheistic god has to throw down the temples of and defeat your your pagan animist gods. Yes. Uh, so when I say gods, I don't necessarily mean in the Western sense. I mean in yep. the sense of the ones that monotheism had to vie with to kind of take over. Uh, and when the Dahan first showed up, they actually mistook the some of the more powerful spirits for gods because yeah. they were they – were, uh, so much like what they anticipated a deific manifestation to be like. Uh, so when I say they're close, like, you know, they're close. Right. Um, it's, uh, again, in, in, in sort of my headcanon, this isn't formally specified anywhere, uh, it's a difference partly of scale and partly of uh, breadth, I guess. Of what? Um, what was that second word? Uh, breadth of, of uh, how broad uh, uh, a scope and area of influence they have. Okay, right, um, right. All of the spirits are strongly localized to specific places. Uh, oh, here's 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 uh, here's a good way to think of it: an actual god on Spirit Island would not be destroyed by blight. Um, be, <laughs> Fair enough. Right. It, it would be it would be bigger than that. It would be big enough that that small sting would not do too much. Um, right, right. Of of the published spirits, I'd say the closest to that level is Serpent slum- Slumbering Beneath the Island. Uh, quit rubbing it in. I don't. I don't have mine yet. That, that, oh, so, okay. Because <laughs> that you have two promotional gods or god. Yes. Listen to me. I can't even. I can't even. Even my <laughs> brain just doesn't say spirit, Eric. Uh, I, I love like just looking at that board and the way that the two lines cross. I'm like, holy cow! Look at what that does. Uh, yeah. So, so you're saying that one is well. I also look at that, Eric, and. I, I have a background in horror, and I love Lovecraftian horror. And okay. in Lovecraft, there's this idea of gods as huge, powerful creatures that, that kind of don't care about you. Uh, mm-hmm. You might get crushed underneath them. And I kind of look at some of the spirits and their relations to the Dahan. Some of the spirits have no compunction about trampling over and destroying and decimating the Dahan. And I think there's almost this Lovecraftian element there in a way. Uh, and specifically, that spirit who slumbers that you're talking about, this idea of a giant worm under the earth – uh, mm-hmm. Is very Lovecraftian. So uh, when you mention that he's the most, the closest to a traditional god idea, I definitely think of Lovecraftian horror. Uh, and so, and that. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, uh, so I, while I am not uh, strongly into Lovecraft, I do share with uh, you. I enjoy coming up with, uh, I guess I call it uh, inhuman intelligences as far. Uh, strongly aspected intelligences um i'll put it like sometimes i'll I'll run role-playing games and whenever i do the 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 gods in those games if the setting has gods uh always are kind of you know 15 degrees off of human thinking they just don't look at things the same way uh they are it's not necessarily in a horror direction the way that lovecraft is but it's in um uh i don't know just uh you get it with some of the spirits. Like, they just don't look at things quite the same way as humans do. They are, uh, their point of view is fundamentally different, and their psychology is fundamentally, on some level, alien because of that. Right, um, right. And the serpent is the most like that. Like, the serpent deals with, it doesn't even deal with, uh, unless you choose to change it in that direction, it doesn't even deal with all of the plants and the animals on the island. It is concerned with very deep things like earth and water and fire and the, and the sort of the primordial dark. Uh, the starting off, like only one of its four power cards actually affects the island at all. All the others affect other spirits. It's uh, it's very uh, uh, down deep 
uh, in that regard. Um, oh, I'm super psyched for it to arrive now, so I ordered them as soon as they were available. But uh, yes. yeah, so so these are the two promo spirits. Uh, Greater than Games basically uh, made them available for ordering online from from their website. Uh, mm-hmm. Who's the second one? Is it the fire? The second one is Heart of the Wildfire. Yes, right, right, exactly. Because that's the thing too. Is I I look through the gods. There's a great lightning one as far as just direct damage, it's like yes. the Magic the Gathering red deck or whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. It did. It seems like fire would be the go-to for that. But you do a great job with with lightning doing that. So yeah, I'm eager to see. Okay, how does a actually give me the the elevator pitch for what the Heart of the Wildfire does? Oh, uh, Heart of the Wildfire. Heart of the Wildfire is uh, fantastically destructive. Uh, it is the, you know how in the back there's the little uh, st- uh, style of play bars which tell you like the spirit is heavy on offense, defense, control, that kind of stuff. Part yep. uh, of the wildfire during all the play testing had a little plus at the top of the offense bar <laughs> and a minus on the bottom of the defense bar to show how strongly candid it was. You broke uh, the scale. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's uh, we decided to do away with that because the scales are all relative rather than absolute, but uh, it's uh, you know in- inside of a given spirit. Uh, it does damage Every time it places presence, every time it puts down presence on the board, it damages invaders. Oh. Um, but the amount of damage it does increases as it uncovers fire on its presence tracks. And once it gets to two, to the point where it can destroy a town by, by putting down presence, it also blights the land every time it puts down presence. Jeez. <laughs> uh, where, you know, while it's a small fire, it's not going to blight the land so much. Um, you know, it's local enough that the, it doesn't blight an entire land, just a tiny subset, which is not big enough to represent in game terms. But as it grows, and, you know, one of the conceits of Spirit Island is that all of the spirits that you're playing as players, they aren't the only spirits on the island. There's, you know, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands. But you're the only ones which are both capable of opposing the invaders, um, are of the correct scale to do so, not too big to, to be slow and not too small to be ineffective and have stepped up and are willing to become more powerful and change in order to fight the spirits. Right, uh, right. And in so doing, the wildfire becomes more intense. And so wherever it goes, it brings this huge firestorm with it and blights the land. Um, now, it plays okay with that in that like uh, any spirit caused blight, either by it or, or uh, some of the spirit powers which give blight, doesn't destroy its presence. It's all right with that sort of thing. And it is secondarily a spirit of regrowth after the fire. You know, burned forests will regrow. There's a natural cycle to these things. And that's represented by one of its two innate powers can remove blight from where it has presence. But first of all, uh, it takes a fair number of elements to do so. So it's not something they'll be doing in early game. And second of all, uh, Blight, the, the blight which it adds when it adds presence represents raging fires. So uh, one or two of its powers depend on having blight where it's doing damage. Uh, so it's like, do I really want to heal this blight? This blight is my friend. Right, it's right. letting me destroy anything which comes into this land. And all the other spirits are like, heal the blight. So, uh, what is blight? Blight represents a combination of things. Its primary... Thing is sort of uh, ecological damage. Uh, this can happen naturally via a wildfire or a volcanic eruption, or it can happen unnaturally by slash and burn farming, extensive agriculture, uh, just even without slash and burn, clearing the land enough that you start getting erosion. Um, if you're dealing with, uh, you know, like, you know, tanning or other types of industry which uh, dump out pollutants into the land, uh, it can be that. The that's sort of the primary obvious physical level. 
on a secondary level, it's also uh, a sort of an attack on the spiritual essence of the land, which is why it destroys spirit presence. Uh, it change it's it's uh, sort of the equivalent of a fire going through a house uh it will it's a it's it's trans it's a destructive transformation of the land from what it was in its natural state to something more cultivated uh and the details of that cultivation vary uh you know my adversary if nothing else like if you're fighting against sweden then they do a lot of mining so the blight represents okay there this is all of the drilling and dynamiting and you know uh uh, uh, you know, heavy metals kicked out and that kind of stuff. Um, but if it's a more intensive agricultural operation, like you're going against France, then it represents the, the broad areas of land cleared for the plantations. Mm -hmm. uh, so. uh, when I, is it intentional that the plastic bits are have an adverse effect and the wooden bits have a beneficial effect? Is that, is that something? Okay, so that is a, a design thing. That's what you thought of would be. Because actually, I, I believe there are earlier prototypes where the towns and cities are little wooden cubes and whatnot. Yes, my prototypes had uh, the cities being sort of your standard uh, city wooden things, which you see as either cities or churches in a lot of Euro games. And the houses were these sort of composite resin house things, which looked a little bit like Monopoly houses. Um, the And we would have gone to sort of off-the-shelf components like that if we'd had to, but both Greater Than Games and I really wanted to do the uh, sculpts for the invaders uh, and so that they could both be distinctive to the game, so that they could have the um, sort of health tracking based on number of buildings pointing up, so that we wouldn't uh, have any confusion on that, and so that uh, they could uh, have, so you could have the plastic versus wood and paper dichotomy. Right, right. Uh, I, I do appreciate the elegance, too, of the invaders having a one-hit point, two-hit point, and three-hit point piece when the Dahan are just a two-hit point piece. So the baseline is two, and then the invaders have a weaker one and a stronger one. Like, that's so simple and easy to explain. Uh, and it, it is, I know you also, in one of your uh, developer diaries, mentioned how the energy – concept used to go into the 20s and the 30s and you could even go as high as 100 and someone finally convinced you to bring that down and to a, a finer to a, a more coarse granularity to where you could yes. use the little coins for it uh yes that's something i really love just about the design as a whole is how few discrete elements and numbers there are and therefore how more significant they are uh there's no sense of just building up amassing a bunch of stuff everything is just this little piece matters a lot. It makes a big difference. There's nothing yes. that just... Yeah. Uh, a weird thing that... Uh, so, in, in thinking of these as spirits, and this is something I wanted to mention earlier, where I think spirits really works, you have a dynamic of fear, where yeah, it's fine to destroy cities and to murder invaders and have them dragged off by monsters and uh, have floods wipe them away. Uh, but ultimately, what you're trying to do is scare off the invaders, is to make them think, okay, this isn't a good place to live. We're frightened. We don't like what's going on. We're, we're leaving. Uh, this idea of, of ghosts or spirits inflicting fear, uh, it's also super intuitive. Is you know, you can't kill all of them because they keep coming from Europe, but you can make them afraid and you can, in a way, almost this Vietnam hearts and minds thing, you can completely demoralize them and they'll leave and not be present. But it creates this um, – I'm accustomed to it, but it was very weird for me at first is I'll be playing Spirit Island 
and the map will be getting full of little plastic pieces. There's mm-hmm. blight everywhere, and there's cities, yep. and and I, and then suddenly, not suddenly, but. Early on as you're learning the game, you're playing and it looks hopeless. It's like a game of pandemic where the disease is everywhere. You lose. But then lo and behold, you win because you realize that you, you've won. But still, the map is full of plastic pieces. Yes. So you must, you must have naturally at some point in the iteration had – Part of the design being clearing all that junk off, securing the map, getting rid of those guys. Uh, at what point did you think, okay, it's all right to win and basically have the invaders controlling the whole island? So the initial victory condition was uh, destroy all cities back during early development. Uh, the 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 fact that you might win and still have lots of you know in isolated explorers and towns still around uh, that is. That is, that is deep. That goes back a long way. Uh, personally, when I end a game, I see the cities. Uh, at, you know, if if I win, if let's say I win a, a terror victory, so that I go all the way through the fear deck, and maybe you know the entire island is overrun. Um, but in getting there, I will have resolved a whole bunch of fear cards, which show just how afraid the invaders are. So I see. I look down, and what I see are ghost towns. Ah. Uh, uh, and it's like, okay, yes, the buildings are still there, but now the natural wildlife can start to creep over them. Um, I know one player who. At the end of every game, I thought about including this as an instruction in the rulebook, but it seemed a little weird, so I didn't. Which is, when you win, remove the invaders first, because like you've won the game. <laughs> um, but thematically, like really, what what happens when you win the game is you remove all the invaders, because that's what it is. And the island may look pretty beat up; there might be lots of blight out. But when you do that, then it looks much more tranquil. Uh, so, uh, I, I maybe, love that. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, maybe for like you know third printing rulebook, I, I should uh, toss that in as something which players can do. I, I do love that idea of everything being a ghost town. Is yeah, okay. There's a lot of infrastructure here, but they've left it behind, and it's going to yep. get swallowed up by time and, and foliage and, and due time. Yeah, it basically uh, turns into a giant playground for a spread of rampant green. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I deeply appreciate in Spirit Island, I play a lot of games, and Euro games are fine with me, and I'm perfectly happy to deal with abstraction. I've got the imagination for it. Uh, you don't really demand that of me. There, there's no mechanic in this game, and when you mentioned the fear cards, that's what made me think of that, that doesn't have a, a snippet of some sort of evocative text. And those fear cards could have just as easily read – Move an invader, one space inland. But instead, you're coming up with these little thematic descriptions. They lead off everything, even the names of the simple act of Prussia moving an act, th- a, a third level trend card, invader card up. Like everything has a name or some thematic explanation. Uh, was that a pain in the ass? Was that a lot of fun to come up with? Did you start to run out of terms for the same mechanics? Uh, obviously, that seems like something you deeply cared about. Uh, yeah, well, it's so ninety-eight percent of the time, it's a lot of fun, which is which is why I did it. Uh, I, I enjoy coming up with evocative names. Uh, I enjoy both, you know, and oftentimes, if I have, even when I'm designing mechanic first, if a card which does this, what I'll often do is like, okay, what's an in-game effect which will do that? come up with the name and concept and then come back around to the mechanics and flesh out the details. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in, in many ways, it's kind of integrated into the workflow. Uh, and sometimes I'll just come up with a, with, with a name and be like, I totally need to make this power card. I don't know yet 
what it does, but it sounds too good to not make. And those don't always end up making it into the final version, but sometimes they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes they, they, they come up. Sometimes uh, Have you added any of the expansion materials yet? Oh, I cannot live with, I, I want to talk to you about that in a minute, Eric. I cannot live without the expansion now. Okay, yeah, but like, for example, Cast Down Into the Briny Deep came around. Yes, like yes. Like, <laughs> it, it was like, oh, oh, that, that's a great name. Okay, oh, oh, I know what that needs to do. Right, uh, right. So, uh, yeah, the only place, I mean, Brandenburg, Prussia, actually, I think is the one place where I ended up almost stuck, because outside of the first level, Brandenburg, Prussia is basically just, uh, I, I mean, you know, it, it could almost be named, you know, like Dash Pump, like faster, stronger, faster, faster, you know. Uh, <laughs> right. Faster the, level one, faster level two, faster, faster yeah, level three. Like, that's what it's doing. It's just cranking up the speed on you. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I spent some quality time with my thesaurus and, uh, you know, managed to, to work out a couple of different ways to say fundamentally similar things. Because that's the other thing, is that I didn't want the, the, the wording on those to be too different, because fundamentally it's the same sort of mechanical action. You're changing the invader deck. And so the titles should be reminiscent of each other to reflect, okay, you're basically doing a similar sort of ramp up. Um, if, you know, level two had been, I don't know, like, you know, uh, you know, uh, efficient bureaucracy and level three had been like, you know, fast ships and level four had been, you know, you know, the chancellor has a, uh, you know, is really keen to get a, a luxury house here. Then I'm not <laughs> sure that that would have tied together as well. Right. Uh, why did you do this? Like why? Why not just say eh, move the invaders when land inland? Uh, I always wanted it to be clear what those represented because it always came okay. from sort of a like I said, even when it came from a mechanical standpoint. Um, Brandenburg Prussia came around because some of my playtesters asked me for an adversary which changed the rules as little as possible. Mm-hmm. I'm like okay, all right, I can do that. But then I went there. Okay, what 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 does that mean? Like if they're just if I'm just moving cards up in the deck, like why is that true? And once I hit upon that truth, I wanted to make sure to convey that to the player to sort of bridge that thematic gap, which they might might they might cue into it if I didn't have those two words, but they might not. And you know, it's not too hard most of the time to come up with a a, a short thing which lets players know, oh, this is why this is in this direction. Oh, this is why that's in that direction. Uh, in some ways, I suppose you could say it's a lesson learned from my first game, Fealty, where the entire underlying abstraction of influence contest in that game represents a very particular sort of thematic conceit uh and that was in my head but like no players ever deduced it so it's like oh okay no like you know play people do not magically read my mind what do you know like you know relationships 101 uh so okay all right players can uh so i give a bit of a bridge there um and also just to try and flesh out the world uh for the power cards at least well, that, that I, I just want to say that makes a huge difference for me when I play board games, whether it's a solitaire game, uh, which is how I really enjoy Spirit Island, whether it's something with friends. One of the things – one of the reasons that I do that, one of the reasons that I enjoy it is there's a sense of a shared narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, storytelling in gaming, board games or video games, for anything for me is a big draw, and it, I – Grew up playing Dungeons and Dragons. It's how I came to, to gaming. Uh, so I, when I talk about a shared narrative, when I'm playing a solitaire game like this, I then think of the shared narrative as, as you and I. You are yes. giving me a sense of what you have in mind with this mechanic. And rather than asking me to come up with it, you're sort of sharing with me this idea. And that doesn't 
impact or limit my imagination. It feeds it, actually. It's not like you're having to think up for me. It's like we're then sharing, oh, the invaders are afraid of the inland, so they're heading to the coast. You know, like, like – and, and that's a that's that's even more evocative for, for me. It, it just feeds my imagination, and it creates this idea of a shared narrative with the designer, if not other players. So absolutely, every time you come up with a cool like you know micro narrative because of the combination of a couple things or your imagination, you can totally imagine me like you know sort of standing there by the table going yes and pumping my fist in the air. <laughs> uh, micro narrative, uh, that's awesome. Is that I I'm going to have to steal that at some point. That's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 what I think of when. Like, you don't necessarily, I mean, the game has an arc to it, but it's not necessarily like the plot of a novel. And what stands out to me, because I've played the game, you know, so umpty bazillion times, uh, but I still run across situations where a particular combination of events and cards and my imaginings will conspire together to make me imagine not a full beginning to end story narrative with like characters and plot and this and that, the other thing, which could be turned into a feature film but a snippet of a feature film or of a novel where it's like, oh, and this is the part where that terrible decision the invaders made two turns ago comes back to haunt them as the locusts arrive, you know? Right, um, right. And uh, so, yeah, micro-narratives are, are how I think of those. Right. Uh, all right, so uh, two things, and then I want to uh, bring up a, a third quick surprise thing uh, sure. invo- that it has involved stalking you on Board Game Geek about other games you've played. Before I get okay. to that, two other quick questions. Uh, I... I, I chafe at the idea when I sit down to play a game of an introductory version of the game. I think of it as the baby version. I have played seriously complicated war games. I'm just ready to jump into the full game. And when I when I run into a game, it's like, hey, play this introductory version and then fold in the rest of the mechanics. And now you're playing the full game. I, I, I chafe against that. Um, for whatever reason, though, in Spirit Island, when you it, – it's so modular – that there, when when I, when I first played Spirit Island, it was dramatically different from the way I'm playing it now with the the add-on with the the branch and claw expansion. Um, but it, it 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 occurs to me that I might at some point I don't right now. You mentioned playing one spirit is a great way to just focus on the pure mechanics of that spirit. Uh, I could imagine at some point going back to the base game as yes. a way to learn one of the spirits, the same way that someone might learn a faction in a real-time strategy game or a character mm-hmm. in a MOBA. Uh, so you, you've done this thing, which I imagine was intentional, of creating a game where the base level of it, all the systems are in place. Everything is there. It's not like a baby stripped-down version of a game. It's like a focused example of your gameplay mechanics. Uh, and then later you fold in things like the adversaries, uh, the branch and claw expansion folds in the events and the, the tokens. Uh, I guess what I want to know is why didn't you just put those awesome events and tokens in in the first place? I think I know the answer, but I'm, I'm curious. There's these great little pieces. Why don't people get those from the get-go? Uh, the answer is originally they were. Uh, the branch and claw expansion and the core game were designed – literally as the same game, they got pulled apart after testing revealed that the number of moving parts in the game was too high for many starting players. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in addition, once I started the process of pulling them apart and started testing them separately, uh, well, actually, that's not completely true. There was always, when you first play, don't use these things. And that turned into the core game. Um, 
when you first play, the diversity of options avail available in Branch and Claw don't actually do a lot for you. They they add the way I think of it is that the additional mechanics in Branch and Claw are almost like different colors of paint. It's not quite the best analogy, but they give me as a designer the ability to create a greater diversity of effects and you as a player the ability to come up with more different ways to creatively fight against the invaders and more different narrative hooks. Mm -hmm. um, when you're first learning the game, there's already so many ways to fight the invaders and so many different narrative hooks and so many other things to learn that you really don't need those. Like they provide additional variety at a time when you don't need variety and you're already learning the rules. And you know, all it does is add extra complexity without actual any extra benefit. Uh, so they were designed together, so they feel very cohesive once they're all rolled together. But it has always been the case that for first plays, I didn't recommend people play with them. And once I started teasing them apart from each other, uh, I realized that even on second and third plays, that the game did not need those extra elements, and it wasn't until you'd played the base game enough and where, what enough is depends massively on the individual player mm -hmm. uh, and on several different things. But once you played the base game enough, then the additional variety was awesome. But before that, it just added things which you didn't necessarily appreciate as much as you would after you played the base game a bit. Mm -hmm. do, you, uh, do you run into people like me who tell you or who feel that the base game has a markedly different feel than, I guess, what I would call the full game. When I transitioned from playing the base game to the full game, my initial reaction was, no, I don't like all this extra random stuff. I don't like how how swingy the events can be, like on the thematic map. Uh, I, I want to go back to this, this lovely elegance of asymmetry with the base game. Uh, mm -hmm. I, 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 at first, didn't like Branch and Claw. I took issue with it. I was like, no, you're screwing up this elegance, this determinism, too, that as a god, I know what's going on. I know what the, I'm, I'm, you know, they may move fast, but I know what they're going to do. You know, they might have the speed, but I have the omniscience. And yes. when I first got into Branch and Claw, I was like, Eric, why are you, you know, you're, you're removing this great gameplay experience, this, over, this sensation that I had, you know, I've, that's all lost. Uh, do you run into that very often? People who, who oh. sort of feel that way. Occasionally, one of my good friends who who is loving the heck out of Spirit Island uh, just dropped me an email asking about the event. He's like, you know, it feels like when I draw an event card, it's like, you know, I just sort of, you know, I'm, I'm just expecting like what terrible thing is going to happen now. And I'm like, yes, that actually is, you know, half of the intended dynamic. The token and Dahan events uh, uh, compensate for them, but the main event on each card is either is at best an opportunity with a cost, and Frequently, it, it represents the free will of the invaders, so it's frequently bad for you. Um, the in, in response to, uh, I'm really glad you brought this up because it's actually a very important part of why Branch and Claw is an expansion and not in the base game. If it were in the base game, people would play with it right off the bat right. and would uh, likely have that reaction. The event deck, in particular, is there, uh, I would say, so that even gods may have challenges. Uh, once you play Spirit Island enough with just the base game, then that determinism 
which people, including myself, so love. Like the determinism of the invader and of the invaders is what lets you do that sort of deep look ahead and and plan against them. It allows you the predictability allows you to really control things. And once you get good enough at the game, your control level gets so high that you can go, oh, I am not going to lose this game. I don't know if it's going to take me three or five turns to right, win, right. but I have this in the bag. There is no conceivable thing that could happen which is going to throw my board control off. And when you get to that level of play, then you have sort of uh, reached a, a new level where you are seeing the game so well that the determinism actually becomes a mild disadvantage. And then the event deck is there for you because then the event deck brings back in just enough random chance because by the time you're at that point, you're already looking uh, very deeply ahead. You have a, you've, you've probably internalized how the invaders are acting very strongly. Uh, and then the event deck says, okay, you've probably, you know, you can tell still, I have a large advantage in this game. I'm doing very well. But the event deck says, but don't get cocky, you know, right. still try your hardest because I could throw monkey wrenches at you and you're going to need to deal with them. Uh, and it brings that slight tinge of uncertainty back in, which keeps tension, uh, because otherwise, once you get good enough, the game starts losing tension in the end game because you know you're going to uh, win or sometimes you know you're going to lose. It's less of a trouble on the lose side because there's always the chance of a fear card doing something good for you. Right. right. Uh, so, uh, the, you know, there's that. But it's... Um, so, yes, I do get that reaction, and it is my usual response to it is totally understandable. Keep playing the base game. Once you get to the point where you're going, wow, I can just see our victories coming turns in advance, then crack open the event deck. Uh, uh, or if you really want to use some of the stuff from Branch and Claw, uh, the online fact has some advice for, like, if you really want to grab a few things from Branch and Claw but not the whole shebang, here's bits and pieces you can use. Right. The way I kind of think of it is... It's like the base game is a scrimmage. Like, this is just a practice. When you actually get out there dealing with the invaders, crazy stuff is going to happen, and you can't quite yes. anticipate it. So here's your little practice simulation arena. You know, <laughs> give it a shot here to test your powers. But real game day is going to involve events and tokens. But yes, the actual invaders are not so accommodating as to be right. perfectly predictable. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, excellent. Yeah, and that's the other – I mean, I say that's the reason for the event deck. That's the mechanical reason for the event deck. On a thematic level, the event deck is there – to provide, you can't give the invaders or the Dahan or the Beasts of the Jungle true free will when they're not a player position, but it's there to come as close as you can inside the scope of the game, to make them not perfectly predictable and give them, you know, have them doing things which represent volition on their parts, because that's more thematically true. And it also, as you mentioned too in one of the early uh, design diaries that you wrote, uh, it, it brings the map alive like yes. like there's clearly a sense of okay there's the sand wheeze uh, disease kicked up over right. here or like th there's a diff there's a definite sense of this happened there uh yes. that, that uh you bring up now here's another issue that i have yeah i cannot i i'm i'm, a, I'm addicted to the thematic map uh and it's unbalanced and yes. you know the 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 balanced map to me now, it just looks like a mess. Like I don't, I can't make any sense of that. It's just, I'm playing on a quilt. Uh, okay. I, 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 I cannot get off of that thematic map. I'm in love with it. It drives the way I think of the game. Okay. Uh, why? Yeah. So, what, what's your feeling about that? Am I missing out on anything by only playing the thematic map from now on? 
It is purely a matter of taste. Like some of my top playtesters literally have never touched the thematic map ever because it doesn't appeal to them at all. Oh, they're missing out though, Eric. <laughs> no, no, they they like the, they like the purely tuned, balanced experience. Um, other people are like yourself and love the thematic map and just want to play with that all the time. Other people will flip flop back and forth. I skew. I when I'm playing for fun will play on the balanced map more often than the thematic map. Uh, I probably skew about eighty twenty. Um, but it's a little hard for it to say because when I say playing for fun, like the number of times that I'm playing for fun, which doesn't involve at least an, a slight tinge of play testing, like until this last June, the answer to that, to like how many times have I done that was basically zero. Uh, you know, there's always this thing in the back of my head about, about like, okay, let's test this. And on the thematic map, it's much harder to test. Ah, uh, right. Right. So, uh, uh, okay, so finally, uh, tell me briefly about uh, working with your artists. Um, there's some some lovely stuff in here. Uh, this could have easily been a Terra Mystica type, you know, eh, everything's going to, we're not going to throw in a bunch of artwork, uh, but you've got some great stuff here. Uh, what was it like working with artists? Uh, did you did you have this kind of artwork in Fealty, by the way? Uh, no, Fealty is also a very low artwork game. It basically okay. has the, the maps and the box, and that's it. Um, and that's one of the things which... Uh, which people dig it for, honestly. And uh, we went with the decision to provide to make a card which was graphically clear but less pretty, and mm -hmm. I think it succeeded at both of those aims, <laughs> for better or for worse. Uh -huh. uh, okay. And Spirit Island, I knew from the get-go that I wanted this game to be gorgeous uh, and uh, greater than games. So I did not do any of the art direction myself. That was all Adam from Greater Than Games. Um, mm -hmm. He and I spent a long time right off the bat narrowing in on a style of art for the game, which we both liked, uh, and finding things online which were sort of representative of it. And the power cards do have a wide diversity of styles, but there is overall sort of a, a, a leaning towards a slightly watercolorish feel with vibrant colors uh, and uh, a lot of dynamism going on, uh, which is sort of uh, what we were shooting for. Um, this was the first project that Greater Than Games did, which involved art, which was not done in-house by Adam. So he got thrown in the deep end. Like, instead of, oh, I'm going to do art direction on a project which has, like, an artist or two, I think, I can't remember exactly how many artists got credited in the, the rulebook, but it's something like 8, 10, 14? Mm -hmm. I can't remember. A lot. Uh, I do remember that they did a call for artists for which they got like 120 submissions, which they winnowed down to 20. And then I looked through the 20 and went, OK, uh, here are the 10 to 12, which really call, speak to me. Mm -hmm. And so then, you know, like we went forward with those. And from then it was sort of a matter of how much time each of the artists had to do stuff. Uh, but now so so uh, so like for all the art. For, for the spirits, Adam and I would talk about what the spirit looked like and go back and forth with concepts. For the individual power cards, usually it was Adam taking my title and running with it, um, although I gave input on a handful of them. I have a question about one specific one, and this might be way too specific. You might have no idea what I'm talking about. Most of the cards, yeah, I, I see the artwork. I get what you're getting at. I, I cannot for the life of me figure out what I'm looking at on the uncanny melting uh, power. Does oh, that, uh, what, what a, is that? Plow. It's a plow which is melting. A plow. I'm not sure I ever want to figure that out. All right. That, uh, okay, that makes uh, good. Good. Now I can see what that is. <laughs> Am I yeah. the only one who's ever said what is that? Uh, 
you're the only one who's asked that question, but I'm sure you're not the only one who hasn't noticed it because there was somebody online who posted, uh, I can't remember what the question was, but they posted a question about the card and its theme. And uh, we're wondering, like, why is melting doing fear? Like, that doesn't seem like it would startle or scare anybody. Water melts. And somebody was like, uh, look at the card. A plow is melting. When your plow starts melting, then you get afraid. Uh, and that is, in fact, the intent of the card, is that a variety of sort of natural human-made things, which are, uh, you know, fences and plows and stables and corrals, which have, uh, which are staking out the land, just kind of melt into goo and wash away, which both helps cleanse the land and helps it regenerate, and kind of startles the invaders who come out to their pasture in the morning and are like, that ain't natural. Right, hence the uh, the uncanny, of course, right, yeah, that makes perfect exactly. sense. And I imagine, too, you must have had a lot of fun playing with the idea of what elements go with what powers. Because sometimes, too, if I'm not exactly sure what a card is getting at, Yes. Uh, I can look at the elements to kind of feed my imagination as well there. Uh, and in fact, oftentimes, I, or not often, but occasionally, I'll come up with a power and I'm like, okay, how does this power do what it does? Like, it's a power which scours the land. Okay, the details of what that power involves changes what elements it will have. And so I will, in fact, sometimes express nuance about how a power functions through the elements I choose for. Right, and, and there's this great... Uh, kind of, uh, you're, it's not railroading, it's almost like you're, you're setting up velvet ropes outside of a nightclub or something, but there's this kind of guidance with the innate powers and what elements yes. they require that, hey, you know, as I'm looking at the four cards that I've drawn for a power, I kind of feel like you're looking over my shoulder and maybe pointing at one of them, saying, mm, consider taking that one, just as a suggestion uh, that comes from the elements. Uh, and it, it, exactly. learning the game, too, it makes it super easy. Like, if I'm playing with someone who is learning the game, I kind of say, and just look at the elements and how they fit to your innate power, and basically lean towards that as you're learning the game. There's some synergy yes. set up. Yeah. Yes, it's a, uh, it is what it's designed to do is to give an incentive to choose powers which are thematically appropriate for the spirit, but not a uh, straitjacket. You can always break the mold of your spirit's theme if you want to, because one of the one of the sub themes of the game is how will you change to handle adversity. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you're the fire, you know, somebody posted a question online like. How is it that wildfire can use a tsunami? It seems counter to its nature. And the answer is, it is counter to its nature at the start of the game. But if wildfire acquires the power card tsunami, that represents them changing to be the type of spirit which can do that. Now, they're not going to do it as well as River can, because they're not going to be able to hit the, the water elements for its threshold. But they can do that. And the reason that... Um, Losing a power card when you get a major is called forgetting. It's because you're losing a piece of yourself. Ah, right. Uh, you, are, you are having to, to lose a piece of that which you were in order to become greater. I love, too, how you specifically highlighted that forgetting mechanic. Because sometimes I'll draw four cards, and what none of them has my main element. And that's so yep. annoying, but I think, okay, I'll just use that to feed a major power later on. Like, yes, it's, exactly. it's like, okay, in a way, I'm going to console myself with, it's not going to be difficult to think of which power to forget later, so that's okay. And that actually is, is one of the reasons that the mechanic evolved that way. Right. right. So, so, yes. Uh, all right, so, uh, Eric, I want to talk to you about your own, the, the influences on you, the games that you sure. play that, uh, that, that have presumably influenced 
your design opinions and, and, and approaches. Uh, and and Board Game Geek makes it super easy for people like you who are very meticulous about logging plays and rating games for me to look at you and think, okay, these are the kinds of games that Eric likes and doesn't like. These are, these are the things he's playing. Uh, Absolutely. Although be, be, be aware that I've only been logging plays for a few years, and so mm-hmm. there's a whole bunch of games which I played a lot before then but haven't played in the last few years because okay. kids. And so uh, it is a, a snapshot in time. And you did mention, too, uh, in your profile that previously you were only logging games that you didn't own as well. So uh, Yeah, I did that for a few years, and then before, I think, like 2010, I don't think I logged at all. Right. Uh, but that was sort of, like, what did I play at that con again? I can't remember. I, I was interested in looking that up, so I'd log a play. So if I look at the things that you have the most plays on, I notice that one yes. of them up there is a game called uh, Argent. Is it the Consortium? What's the Yes, song? Argent the Consortium. Yeah. Yeah, consortium. Yeah, I can never yep. think of that second word. Uh, what do you like about that game? It's just I, I'm going to be a devil's advocate here. I'm just going to give you uh, that game. It's just boring worker placement. What do you say to that? <laughs> it's certainly worker placement, but it's anything but boring. Uh, the workers themselves each do different things, which at the time the Argent was published was more or less new, aside from I think maybe the masters versus. Uh, apprentices in Leonardo da Vinci or something. Uh, the you know there's five different types of mages, six if you get the expansion. And now I'm really sorry that we're recording this podcast now instead of last week because they just finished up the Kickstarter for an expansion and second printing of Argent like yesterday. Ah. Uh, so I don't know, maybe it's still pre-orderable. Um, but yeah, no Argent. Uh, the different mages all can do different things, and it's a it's a worker placement game or all of the things you're accumulating. It's an engine building game. And in the end, you're being judged on pieces of your engine, but ultimately everything you're getting is part of your engine. So it's very satisfying from uh, getting things which fit together with other things. It's not like, oh, I got this achievement and it's worth two victory points at game end, or, uh, you know, oh, I have, you know, I, 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 get, I like Agricola, don't get me wrong, but oh, I have a cow, so I get a victory point instead of losing a victory point for not having a cow. Um, and cows have a bit of use in Agricola. Okay, you can eat them. That's about it. But in Argent, the things you're accumulating are like mana, which you can use to cast any of a variety of spells. The spells, each of which has three different levels, and they break the game in all kinds of different ways. There's an entire dynamic between offense and defense and healing and uh, and and what types of mages people have and what you're going for, attempting to read other people's strategy, fighting over influence. There's a lot going on, and uh, it scratches both the build a complicated engine which can do awesome stuff uh, uh, itch at the same time as um, having an interesting competition because some games which let you build an awesome engine are mostly you know just okay everybody's building their own engine in right in, in in solitaire and this like yes you have the interaction from worker placement that only one person can go on a given space but you also have the interaction from like I'm gonna fireball your worker and take their space or oh, look, everybody in this room got banished into the Shadow Realm. Or, hey, I get to go three times now because my workers, uh, because I'm using planar magics, which dilate time. So it has a lot of sort of interesting super thematic stuff going on and lots of different powers and effects, and no two games are ever the same. Yeah, the pieces are very active in that. They actually yes. do things. They're not just sitting there. They're not just markers, in a way. You get the yes. sense that they are, they're kind of verbs of their own. Yeah. Yes. And I also love how modular it is. Just what, yeah, what rooms get modules. placed on the board. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, it also is interesting among worker placement games in its use of tempo. 
uh, the like in most worker placement games, getting another worker is just good. Even in games where you have to like feed that worker extra, it, the worker is usually more than capable of generating enough value to pay for themselves. Mm-hmm. In Argent, there's this dynamic where you, when you, one of the main actions you can take on your turn is take a bell tower card. There's a number of those equal to the number of players, and when the last one is taken, the round ends. You don't get to place your final workers. So if other people are pushing tempo, taking additional workers will do nothing for you because you won't have a chance to use them. Right, uh, right. But if you are ahead on tempo, then you can afford to acquire additional workers and you'll be able to make good use of them. Similarly, with anything which takes an action but does not involve placing a worker, uh, any spell which does that, any artifact which does that. So there's this tempo game going all through your play of who's ahead on tempo, who's managing to do their things the most efficiently uh, and get their workers out the fastest, uh, and who can afford to take those frequently powerful abilities which take an action to use. also then combined with, if you get all your mages out very quickly, then you are target number one for everybody who has a fireball or a magic sword or other thing which is looking to go like, well, I might as well, you know, knock somebody off off space while I'm going in if it's something I actually want to do. Um, so, so that's another really interesting dynamic of the game. Right. Uh, you've also played a lot of a solitaire game. I say a lot, but one of the things higher up on your number of plays, uh, a solitaire game called One Deck Dungeon. Although, actually, does that play cooperatively? Yes, you can play it two-player, which is what the vast majority of my plays have been. Oh, okay, so you haven't been playing it solitaire. Uh, yeah. What do you like about One Deck Dungeon? One Deck Dungeon is... Uh, for, I like the elegance of the design. Uh, mm-hmm. the, it's uh, full... If you're, are you familiar with roguelike video games? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, it approximates very, you know, to the degree that you can, a roguelike with a single deck of cards, which is kind of impressive, including multiple different dungeons. Uh, the, whenever you fight against a creature and win, well, whenever you fight against a creature, it's assumed that you win. It's just a question of how badly winning hurts you in both time and health, uh, which is vaguely apropos for the genre. Uh, and so then you get to decide whether to use it for gear or for experience uh, or for learning new skills. And then the skills, like the different skills make every play through feel different. So for, for just having one deck of cards, you get a lot of variety in one box. It's pretty yeah. neat. Uh, do you actually use, so there's a sense of, of character progression across different games that's persistent. Uh, you, yeah, you, you play use, a game. There's a, there's a campaign sheet. I've used that for like one character, I think. What? Only one game? You mean you normally play and just reset to zero? Yeah, that's my norm. Ah, Eric, you're missing out on all these these experience points that you've accumulated. Uh, <laughs> yes, but I like the challenge. So, so I should say, um, uh, all of like, I don't know. My first like dozen plays of that uh, logged are all from playtesting. Like I said, uh, Chris says of Asmadi is local, so I've been at a bunch of uh, uh, game nights where he was doing initial playtesting before it got published. Ah, uh, okay. Then I also picked up a copy because I really enjoyed the game, uh, and I've since been playing it with friends. Um, but I'm frequently not playing it with like the same friends time after time. So, not, you know, I'm not always. I like. And I, I think I might have two characters who have who have campaign sheets. Um, but uh, it's uh, no. I like the challenge of. I mean. If I'm in the mood for a challenge, then I'll play on, you know, sort of the as published, nothing easier, no skills, just straight right. up go for it uh, level. Now, that's pretty brutally difficult. Like, I've, I've defeated the dragon on that level. Uh, I have defeated the hydra on that, but I do not, I have not taken down the yeti. The yeti is, oh. Uh, right. 
So I might need to go campaign mode to take out the Yeti. Because that's what I'm thinking. Is there's a feedback loop of uh, yes. you, you play the harder game as you get your character more leveled up. Uh, yep. yeah, yeah, which is very roguelike as well. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and finally, before I, I let you go, uh, I was delighted to see on your list a game that – if I was ever – pressed to choose a favorite game. I mean, that's really hard to do. Guys like us who like a lot of different games, I couldn't just name one favorite. But if I was forced to, a game that fascinates me that I... Anytime we're playing board games, if there's even a hint that people are willing to play this one, it's the one that I would push for. Uh, mm -hmm. I adore this game. It's really hard to find. Uh, it's really hard to find people who are willing to learn the design, which is not easy because I don't think the rules book is well written. But I was delighted to see on your list a game called A Study in Emerald. Ah, uh, yes. Yes, the first edition. Yeah, the first edition. Oh, thank, exactly right. Okay. Now, I I haven't seen the second edition. I've read the the rules for it, mm -hmm. uh, and it's you know I can understand Martin Wallace wanting to make something more accessible. But as someone who loves the first edition, I look at the second edition with uh, something approaching disdain. <laughs> I think uh, <laughs> I looked over the the list of changes, and most of them on paper look like good ideas to me, things that I'd like, but then there's one or two which, which leave me cold enough that I've not sought out the second edition. Well, they, a lot of it is stuff that, that the game loses to make it more playable, but it loses yes. things that are part of its identity, I, I, I think. Uh, yes, so yeah. as a fellow Studian Emerald fan, I pres yes. presume, uh, what makes that game work for you? Oh, that... It's a combination of the psychology of the factions, which is beautiful. Uh, the the attempts at like the, my first plays of that, everybody was trying to cloak which faction they were. Like they weren't they were trying to not telegraph it, but they weren't trying to be actively deceptive about it. Mm -hmm. Because when you're starting the game for the first time, like figuring out who somebody is is kind of tricky. Um, but then as we learned it. Would start being able to tell. Oh yeah, yeah, you know, you're 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 a restorationist, or yeah, you're a loyalist, and then people started making plays where it's like, oh, clearly you're not a loyalist because you just wait, what, what? And uh, the fact that the game supports making the value of hiding who you are is high enough that it can be worth it to make these grand deceptions is just lovely on both the thematic and the mechanic level, mechanical level. Uh, and and that's and we've had one or two games which ended with beautiful reveals at the end where people were convinced that somebody was one faction and in fact somebody had just been playing them the whole time. Uh, the other thing I enjoy is sort of the it doesn't go the same way twice. It's very open. Uh, the it is so open that sometimes first-time players have a very hard time because there's so many different things you can pursue. Right. Uh, and it runs a little bit into, okay, like, you know, there's N different locations on the board, and then these cards off the board, and these cities, and with all these different things to choose from, like, new players can run into the problem of just not being able to value those things. It's the same sort of problem you get into, like, what's worth fighting over and what's not. Uh, and that can be tricky for a first-time yeah. player. But once you have a general sense of that, it's neat because it's like, okay, all right, this game, all right, I'm I'm going bombs, I'm going for assassination and or uh, hiding. Great, I'm going to go this way, and oh, that's not working out. I'm going to pivot. Oh, Cthulhu came up. Okay, let's try this. Let's try the other thing. There, there's a lot of room to 
players have a lot of room to run around. The, the board is not so constrained that it forces you to fight with each other. And again, this comes with a mild downside of like if two people fight a lot, it, you can kind of end up in a like, like let's you and them fight so that I win. Um, but if you don't end up in that, if people fight only over what's worth fighting over, then you can just end up with a, a, a delicious sense of openness, which is really right. awesome. And even when two people do fight to their detriment, uh, as you mentioned about the faction system, one of the things that Martin Wallace did with that design is – and I, don't, I can't think of any game really that does this – is the loser is always relevant. You know, yes. normally in a game when I'm losing, it's like, okay, well, you guys finish the game. I'm just going to make my few moves. But when you're losing, you hold all the cards in Study yes. Emerald. Uh, yes. And that's a brilliant design decision, just psychologically, socially, as far as social interaction, yes. is make the guy in last place the determinant for, for who's going to win. I love that idea, uh, and it's something I, I haven't really seen. Uh, yeah, in our, in our sort of mid-play games, we ended up with a few games where uh, the – the player who was ahead in the losing faction did not realize or did not realize in time that they needed to be giving their teammate, well, I use the word teammate loosely, um, their faction mate, uh, uh, something of a leg up, uh, you know, because they were so concerned with not, they were so concerned with, um, not being surpassed in their own faction that they shot themselves in the foot. Right, right, right. Yeah, so, and yeah. it also leads to this to this intentionally losing. Like, okay, I'm sandbagging. If you're not, you know, you, you're in the lead. If someone who's on my side is in the lead, I want to be in last place to, to keep them from ending the game. Wallace does this with a couple of his games. Is the game doesn't play where everybody gets stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger and somebody finally hits a threshold where they win. Mm-hmm. Wallace is, does this thing with studying Emerald. There's something called Mythos that he made where the game is about who ends it when. Not yes. when does the game end, and I, I love that too because normally you sit down in a game and it's like, okay, this game lasts six turns, go. Uh, and this it's, this game lasts until someone maneuvers into a winning position. Yeah. Yep. Uh, uh, and also, go ahead. Sorry. I was. It's lovely. Just the uh, the the number of levels between the atomic actions you take on your turn and winning the game like there's five layers of indirection there so yeah. when you first start playing it is not at all obvious what your actions are doing in terms of whether they're helping you or not right right <laughs> it's not an easy game to learn but it is a no. game that the more you play it uh, definitely the richer it becomes and the, it facilitates uh, a lovely type of deception and double think yeah uh, and I admire any designer who is willing to break his own design. Uh, the idea of the, the vampire cards and the zombie cards, and you mentioned Cthulhu and even Bismarck. Uh, and you never know if those will come into play. Like it, Martin Wallace has all these game-breaking design decisions, and he's very coy about whether or not it's going to come up in any given game. You don't know. I love that. Yeah. All right. Finally, Eric, uh, what I def- you, you look at the games that people have rated on board game geek you can see what mm-hmm. numbers they've given them yep. eric you gave twister a 10 yes <laughs> twister i think i think you accidentally clicked the 10 right <laughs> nope uh, i put it out there uh like i said on my profile page my 10s are an eclectic bunch and uh, uh are there usually because of some special fondness uh i tried for a while incorporating, making my ratings half subjective and half some sort of objective critique. And eventually I decided that just didn't work. I instead went pure subjective 
And so uh, 10 is, you know, ex something I'm extremely enthusiastic about and a personal favorite. Uh, and Twister is absolutely that. It is a, it is, even if I judge it like as a board game, it is seriously flawed. There's a number of design decisions which I would change if I were making it myself. Um, and I have house rules, in fact. But even that, it is just excellent at what it does. It is a phenomenal macro level dexterity game with strategy. There is strategy to Twister. The problem Wait, is, what? You... yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. What's the strategy in Twister? I can't describe it without over a phone call because it's all spatial. If I had a board in front of me, I could show you. Uh, but yeah, no, there's strategy. It's just that it's gated. If you don't have a certain level of physical ability, the strategy is irrelevant because it'll just fall over. Um, but uh, I, I will say that like the longest game of Twister I've ever played was over 45 minutes. Whoa, uh, wow. Yeah, that's, it came that's down to me and somebody else. That was the game which led me to realize that once you get down to two players, that the map needs to be smaller because it is too hard to pin the other player down ah, and get sure. them into, into a difficult position. But the, uh, the, the biomechanics involved of balance and of uh, how fast your muscles fatigue uh, mean that certain types of positions are easier to hold. Putting yourself in certain locations... Uh, can obstruct your opponent's ability to move their center of gravity in ways which they'll need. Mm -hmm. uh, it, there's actually a game there, in addition to just, let's try and not fall over. Um, sure. But, but uh, yeah, so I, I love Twister. I have a blast with it. I have not played it in far, far too long. Uh, but, I think Twister's yeah. also gotten a bad rap from, like, uh, teen sex comedies or whatnot. It's the idea of watching oh, yeah, hot yeah, chicks yeah. play yeah. Twister. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I tend to prefer... Um, the, the official rules on the on the box lid say like you spin and then everybody does that at once. I tend to prefer round robin, uh, where you have where whoever's doing the spinning will like make a spin for person A, then person B, then C, then D, and then ah, just move sure. back through. You get much more interesting dynamics and tangled limbs, uh, and it allows for much more strategy as well. Right, um, sure, sure. It, it's 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 more more nuanced than a simple land grab. Like I said, I have house rules. Uh, right. As as well as guidelines over how much physical shoving is is you know within the limits of good sportsmanship. Um, right. So yes, it's a board game where good sportsmanship is not merely a matter of like shaking hands and saying good game and being polite about you know uh, uh, somebody take backing if if that's what your table does, uh, but it's a matter of like you know no like don't sit on someone's face. That's not. Right. That's not <laughs> well, Eric, I really appreciate you hanging out with me today. Uh, you said you've signed a third deal. Is this something that's been announced anywhere? Uh, yeah, I don't know if it's been announced. It's, I've been talking about it. And I'm, I, I, I'm fine to talk with it. It's, uh, it is a real-time dexterity strategy co-op. Um, it's work, it's final title is still being hashed out, but I'm leaning towards science or die. And, uh, it's a, uh, a game about, uh, there's a couple co-op games out there about curing diseases. This is another one, but in this one, you're not just like abstractly saying, oh, I need three of a red to cure this disease. In this, you are designing out a, a pattern of blocks using cards, and then you have to physically build a tower of blocks uh, to create this tower that you've specified using cards. So ah. it is also unlike most dexterity games out there. Most dexterity games out there show you a picture and say, build this. In this... If you can't build the impossible structure, it's your own fault because you're the one who decided what it is you needed to build. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you said, oh, "Okay, all right, we can solve this disease using you know we can cure this disease using these three design cards," uh, and you should have thought about maybe you can't actually build that in physical reality. And uh, uh, with whom? With whom have you signed a deal for this? Uh, it is signed with Gray Fox Games.
Okay, good, good. Great. Champions of Midgard and uh, uh, London Dread, a few others. And what is the situation of availability right now with Spirit Island and Branch and Claw? Do you know offhand? Uh, Spirit Island and Branch and Claw are both sold out at the distributor level, which means that distributors cannot order any more from the publisher. Uh, most online places are sold out of the base game Spirit Island, although there are a few exceptions hither and yon. And but there are many retail stores, many brick and mortar places still have it because you know it only just shipped out like a three to four weeks ago. Uh, so some of them are literally just getting their shipments in now. Mm-hmm. Uh, their uh, Branch and Claw, I believe, is still available online. I haven't checked lately, but as far as I know, it's still widely available online, although it's sold out at the distributor level. There is a reprint already in for the base game that should be hitting the U.S. around December. I don't know details of timing. Uh, we Actually, we won't know details of timing until it's physically on a boat headed our way. Right. And uh, there is a reprint for Branch and Claw, uh, as well as the promo spirits, uh, going in, which should get to the U.S. sometime around February. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's right in the game's intention to try and you know, minimize any gaps in availability and try and make sure that uh, both, both products are available. Great, good. Well, uh, I heartily encourage folks to pick that up. You can read my review of uh, Spirit Island at quarter3.com. Eric, again, thank you so much for joining me today. Congratulations on how well Spirit Island is done. Uh, is there anything about the reaction now that it's in the, in the live, now that it's come out? Uh, what has most surprised you about how people have reacted to Spirit Island? Uh, what is most – the biggest number one surprise was uh, difficulty. Uh, we did a lot of testing on difficulty at conventions, and we calibrated it so that we thought that the the base game out of the box, you know, with a selection of the low complexity spirits using the power progression, uh, what we'd seen at conventions was about a seventy to eighty percent win rate. Mm-hmm. And you know, the game has, as you know, like a lot of ways to increase difficulty at a fairly granular granular level, and it can get really, really hard if you want it to. So we didn't worry too much about setting the difficulty too easy, because we're like, yeah, it's easy to crank up. And when you crank it up, it also gets more thematic, because you're fighting against a specific adversary. Well, it turns out that the learning from the rulebook is different than learning from a physical teacher. And we knew this to some extent, and you know, we had a lot of people at Greater Than Games who were testers who came and learned from the rulebook. But... The, it looks like teaching at a convention, just the way that people teach apparently conveys some level of implicit strategy advice, even when they don't give any explicit strategy advice. Because there's a number of people who have found, like the base game, like it takes them three, four, five, six times to win their first game. We're like, whoa, okay, that's harder than we originally anticipated. Um, mm-hmm. For the second printing, I have uh, put a, a sidebar in on the strategy tips page of if this game is crushing you and you're not finding it fun, because some people like their co-ops being super hard. Right. Um, uh, you know, here are some ways you can make it slightly easier until you until you you know get more of a handle on some of the core strategies. Um, and that's also up on the online fact. If anybody listening, you know, is, is has a uh, first printing and is curious, uh, the, I, I cannot. Uh, recommend strongly enough the online fact. It is something which is super easy for me and other people to update. It's searchable, so if you have any questions, like go there. It's linked to on the back of the of the rulebook, and uh, it, uh, you can just do a quick search or check your keywords, and it'll have everything. Um, but it has this, you know, if you want to make the game easier, then you can do that. Right. Um, so that's the the number one surprising thing, um, I, uh, which kind of took me aback in the opening weeks. I have since become reconciled to it. And I will say, uh, as someone who I I 
love rule books. I love reading game rules, and that's kind of weird, but that's 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 my kink, I guess. Is I, I love sitting down with a good rule book. Uh, mm-hmm. I have not had a single instance, and I, I mean this without exaggeration, Eric. I've played Spirit Island. I've got you know I'm keeping a high score list. I've got like 20 games logged. There have been plenty of times I've had to look something up, but I don't think there is a single instance of me not being able to resolve a question or a possible conflict or a puzzlement without just looking it up in the rule book. You've done a fantastic job with clear, concise, comprehensive rules. So Thank congratulations you. on that. Because that can never I, – I can imagine that can't be easy for folks. So right? Writing rule books is such a hard thing. It is, yeah. it is really difficult. Yeah. Right. Uh, well, Eric, thank you so much, much for – yeah, and I appreciate you spending all the time with me today. Sorry we went over. Uh, but uh, And especially thanks for making the game, Eric. Uh, thank you very much for enjoying it. Uh, it warms my heart every time I hear of somebody who's having a good time with Screw It Out.